Hello, and welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, special episode one. Kells, a novel of the 8th century, an interview with Amy Crider. Hello, and welcome to the first special episode of the CHP, an interview with Amy Crider about her upcoming historical novel, Kells, a novel of the 8th century. Amy's book is of stark relevance to our humble podcast as we jump from the 5th century BCE to the 8th century AD to the heart of the Gaelic world at the monastic community of Iona. For those who don't know much, I will give some context and background to this era as we are over a thousand years away from this period. Ireland, during this time, was the heart of what scholars call Celtic Christianity, which is a stunning cultural confluence that produces some of the most iconic symbols of Gaelic culture to this day. A prime example would be the Celtic High Cross, which are magnificent stone crosses which feature the curved vinealier designs, much like those which decorate the material culture of the Latin period. The centre of this were the great monastic houses centred on powerful monasteries such as Armagh, Iona and, of course, Kells. The Book of Kells itself cannot be done justice to the format of audio, so I highly recommend a look at my Instagram and a quick Google image search of the Book of Kells. I plan to cover this period in more detail, possibly on the YouTube channel, but if you want to zoom in on Amy's novel, it's a fantastic place to start. Amy's research is astounding in its breadth and depth, and the book has a real empathy towards the characters in an authentic context and understanding. The novel is in four parts, the first of which gives a real authentic look at the life in early medieval Ireland, focused on Canachtach, who trained at the monastery but had to return home due to a family tragedy and is now ready to return to Iona with a single-minded mission to create a great gospel for the glory of God. I will leave it there for now as not to give anything away, but I will say Amy has a brilliant grasp of Canachtach as a character and she manages to illuminate the 8th century, which is highly refreshing as this period is often known as the Dark Ages. Hello, Amy. Welcome to the Celtic History Podcast. Uh, it's uh, wonderful to have you on. Uh, I know that a lot of my listeners are very excited for this particular interview. Uh, I wondered if you could just start by telling us a bit about your yourself and your career so far um, uh, and your book. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm, I'm honoured to be interviewed for your podcast. And in terms of my own bio. Uh, I'm 62 years old. I'm American. I live in Chicago. And uh, I was raised in upstate New York, actually, in a more rural area. My first novel was published when I was 60. And that was a murder mystery called Disorder. And I'd written Kells um, around the same time. I was alternating between them over a period of many years. And I had given up on the idea of cows getting published. It had been rejected a great deal. 
And to my surprise, the publisher, the University of New Orleans Press, that published my first novel, was open to publishing Kells. And that took me very much by surprise, and I'm thrilled. And it's coming out around November 1st. And it's a historical novel about monks creating the Book of Kells around 800. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's a... Uh leads me very nicely into my first question. Uh, I think it's wonderful to have uh, publishers that are willing to uh, invest in such new subjects because there is uh, an audience out there. And I think uh, you've shown that uh, amazing stories and characters can be found anywhere. Um, but I, I just found it was so unique um, to find an author so willing to commit herself to such a niche topic. Um, it's so poorly known about in in the general public uh, and not very well understood either uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what motivated you to write about this particular topic um, and if the maybe the characters came first or the area came first or if you could talk a bit about that well, that'd be great it's funny because when I set out to do this I assumed that the book of Kells was much more famous than it actually is <laughs> yeah. I thought everyone had heard of the book of Kells and of course <laughs> A number of people have people who love the Middle Ages or Irish history or Scottish history um, love the Book of Kells, but it's not as widely known as I assumed it was. So I went into this in a very naive way, mm -hmm. but I was uh, fascinated always by medieval art. Mm -hmm. uh, medieval art is just so beautiful and fantastical. Mm -hmm. I also love medieval music. I used to have mm -hmm. a, an LP of 13th century music. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And I watched a PBS show about 20 years ago called In Search of Ancient Ireland. And they were talking about the Book of Kells. And they're also mentioning the Viking invasions and mentioned that that was going on at the same time that when they were creating the Book of Kells, it was around the same time that Vikings were starting to raid in Britain. And I was fascinated by that. I thought I never put that together before. And I immediately wanted to write a historical novel about those two things happening, the mm -hmm. creating the Book of Kells while they're dealing with the Viking raids of this time period. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, it's I think um, the, the there's there's somewhat of a. I always thought it was really interesting and I have found really interesting doing this podcast that um, you mentioned that people, you thought everyone knew about the Book of Kells, but I have to say that us Celts over here are much, much more ignorant of our own past uh, than our American counterparts, who I believe often treasure and preserve it better than we do. So mm. I think, I think that's a, um, I think that's a, an interesting comment. Um, mm. But I remember uh, listening to your own podcast, uh, Continuous Dream, about how you decided to go ahead with this despite it was feel, feeling it was unlikely to be published, which you did mention there, you didn't think it was very likely. Um, uh, I also uh, I found interest in my chosen subject from pretty unexpected corners. I didn't expect such an audience and such fast growth. Um, but you must have had a real passion for the story and the characters to invest so much time and energy into the research. Um, because you, you did, uh, as you mentioned on your podcast, you spent quite a long time researching this book. Excuse me. Hmm. Yeah, I spent about five years mostly reading books, 
from the library. Mm -hmm. I read about 50 books from cover to cover. I really dug into the research. I just wanted to feel well-versed in the time period. And I just had a passion for finding out what I could about, about the period, about the people. And once I was committed, you know, I couldn't go back because I'd committed so much already. And it's not that I would have given up, but I wasn't overly discouraged by the fact that it was getting rejected and that it wasn't getting published because I was really committed. And once you start something like that, you can't really turn back even if you want to, which which I didn't want to anyway. But I just dug into it and felt, I think I felt committed to these characters. Once these characters came to me, even though I did invent their stories, we don't know much about any of these people. But many of the people in the book, the names are the names of real people that we know existed. And I felt committed to telling their stories somehow. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting, actually, that, that it, it feels like a real, a real tribute, um, in a sense, to, to, to many things. Um, but the, the people who lived through this very turbulent time still managed to make this absolutely stunning creation through hardship and loss and uh, devastation and change that hadn't really been seen in hundreds of years on the British Isles. So I think that, uh, that passion really from from you really shines through um and it's it's quite a it's quite a compliment um to us in the british isles who who themselves feel uh like we identify uh with with our ancestors so uh, yeah that really does shine through um but you mentioned that the characters are based on um real people uh so do you want to talk a bit about uh who's the primary uh, the kind of from the first part uh, of the novel uh, tell us a bit about the inspiration uh, and maybe a little bit about the historiography right the first book I read when I started my research was called Fury of the Northmen and it mentioned that we don't have much written records of this time of course but on the island of Iona the monastery there were annals where they would make note of things like if an abbot died, the year they died, and just these very sparse records. And there was mentioned Kanaktak, his death, and that he was a master scribe. And I thought, wow, a master scribe around 800, maybe he was the main scribe of the Book of Kells. Mm. And when I got that name and got that reference that this could be the guy, you know, I just felt like that's the story I'm going to start with. I need yeah. to tell this man's story. And an interesting thing also in this research is that experts analyzing the Book of Kells have identified what they think are four scribes. They've analyzed the handwriting and thought there were four scribes who worked on it. And that they even try to guess at the personalities of these scribes based on their handwriting so that one scribe seemed more relaxed and maybe jovial and another scribe seemed a bit more uptight and formal. And I use some of that research as well to influence the characters I created 
uh, about these scribes. Yeah, that's completely amazing. Uh, we're always crying out in uh, we kind of history enthusiast, if you like, community for more authentic representations of um, of characters, how they were. Um, and I remember reading something about the people who were studying the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and they they started to feel personal attachments to uh, to to the individuals because it changes obviously over time, all the way up to uh even into the norman period uh, and feeling kind of sad when when the that scribe ended their period and and you got into a new scribe and having to get to know that new person so that that's really interesting that it shines through even even yeah. sometimes when they're they're dictating quite dry things yeah, mm. yeah. So well, there's nothing there's nothing dry about the artwork in the book of Kells. that's for oh, sure no, absolutely you have not. wild chimerical animals and you have mice eating the communion host and <laughs> yes. all kinds of things yeah is it, do you have a favorite um bit of art from the book of kells uh, in particular uh, i don't know if i have a favorite but certainly the famous kiro page is oh, yes. uh, fantastic oh i i could email you if i i don't know if i've done this i actually on my own laid out the Kiro page, the way they would have done it at the time, because they didn't have rulers. They had a straight edge that was unmarked and a compass. And they did all their designs just with those two tools. And I saw, it must have been in one of my books, uh, a schematic of how they laid that out, that page, and how where the lines joined up and where the centers of the circles wow. were. And I laid it out with pencil, with a, a compass and straight edge. Wow. And it was a lot of fun. That's that's really cool. That's really interesting. Oh yeah, I'd love to see that if you, if you do find it. Um, but it, I think it goes to show that there, there's definitely a perception um, probably somewhat perpetuated by modern media that people in the past were, you know, narrow-minded and stupid and whatever else and they just had a different worldview. And I think the Book of Kells is a prime example of, of the level of personality and expression um that can go into some of these works because they were they were the most educated people of of their day um and uh, yeah so that's really fascinating um i have a couple of responses to that one is that one of the things that interested me was that these were artists mm -hmm. and i think an artist is an artist whether they were a thousand years ago yeah. or uh David Hockney, an artist yeah. is an artist. And um, the other thing is, one thing I found in my research was that we tend to think that medieval monks would have been like very literal, like believed in the literal interpretation of the Bible and that nowadays we're so modern and we we don't necessarily take that view. But at this time period, it was not always the case that people took a literal view of the Bible. There are actually two schools, the Antiochian school and the Alexandrian school. Mm -hmm. And the Antiochian school did take a more literal view of the Bible, but the Alexandrian school took the Bible as an allegory and did not take a literal view of the Bible. So you had a variety of viewpoints. It was not a monolithic period. Mm -hmm. It was not a time when everyone just believed all the same things. It was There was variety mm -hmm. and there was sophistication and there were many points of view about all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think you display that very well 
through some of your characters there isn't it's not a monolith they, you know there there's definitely some a lot actually uh, of diversity of viewpoints and and there's somewhat of a people's personality being grafted onto their interpretation of of god and the bible and community um and that, that was to be honest that that was one of my favorite aspects of the bible uh, not the bible sorry the book of gals um the your novel uh it was it was i, I felt like the characters were so individualistic considering they were part of a monastic community which you know you might not expect if you didn't know better um and i think you you demonstrated that really well yeah. thank you yeah uh, yeah no i've i've read an awful lot of uh historical novels and i have to say um that that's the bit that people really struggle to get right is authentic characters authentic to where they the, the place they are um, and I think that's that's something that's really impressive. Um, so, the did you visit anywhere in particular that was interesting and uh, was key to your inspiration? And if you did, were there any particular thoughts and feelings that were shining through uh, at location uh, or inspiration? I did get to Iona twice. I didn't spend very long there. It was an afternoon one day and an afternoon another day as part of a longer tour. But I loved Iona. The sense of peacefulness is so deep. You really feel at peace as you walk around that island. And I love the fact that there are almost no cars. I actually haven't driven a car since 2017. We haven't owned a car since 2006. <laughs> so, and I'm sure your audience can hear the traffic noise outside my window. I hope that's not disruptive. No, it's not, it's not at all. Oh, good. Um, so I loved that, that deep sense of peace on Iona. It was just beautiful. <laughs> and I was also very happy to have discovered on this, the second time I went there, the beach that's all pebbles and those standing piles of rocks that uh, apparently the monks themselves would create on that beach where they would toss a rock onto the pile for every sin they felt they had or that. And I didn't even know that that beach was there until I got to oh, visit really? for myself. So that was, that was neat. And I also did visit Dunad Again, oh, right. uh, part of a larger tour that we, we hiked up it and hiked back down. Mm -hmm. And the view and the, the beauty and the peacefulness was lovely. And we did get to Kilmartin right after Dunad. And Kilmartin fascinated me because these standing stones are so old. And we tend to think that if something's old, it's old. It's all the same age. But in the time period of my book, they would have already been considered rather ancient even then, because they were already that old. So it's not like everything that's old is the same age. They had a sense of things being ancient in that era, just as we also have a sense of things being ancient, that it, things go further and further and further back. And I, I found that very interesting. Mm -hmm. That's something I've always found personally interesting, um, is the, the, the modern perception is that like oh yeah like egypt's a prime example so people think cleopatra and they go well the pyramids were older to cleopatra than cleopatra is to us and and people struggle to understand the ancientness um of, of things uh we're very I, th I think it's something with all our information it's something we're very ignorant of these days yeah. um but 
I think that I can see why the the if if you like the area of the of the Scotty, um, so kind of Ulster area across to uh, the Isles, um, that it was such a place of inspiration uh, and expression because there, as you've mentioned, there is something kind of magical about a lot of these places. Um, it's quite hard to put your finger on it. It's and sometimes you go places and it it kind of feels like even the birds know there's something special about it because it's completely silent. You can't even hear birds chiming. It's yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, so I don't want to give too much away um, about the characters' journeys because I think they're uh, they're very interesting, very compelling, and I'd love to talk about some of it. But we're trying to keep it spoiler free. Um, but they do. Do a bit of impromptu traveling um and they there's they've got a very good reason for that um which i won't reveal uh which i again i found uh, very interesting and there's a bit of a they they there's a bit of a tour uh, of of some really points of interest in the early medieval world and uh, i'm just wondering if of the places they visited did you have a favorite or somewhere that you particularly wanted to mention or explore um, I didn't personally visit the other places in the book, so I don't have that background. One little tidbit that I just found humorous that is mentioned in the book was that one of the characters goes to Rome and he goes to old St. Peter's and he's looking at the mosaic on the wall. And there's a mosaic of um saint presenting a model of the cathedral to the Pope. Mm -hmm. And this character is thinking, well, wait a minute, in that model is this mosaic of him handing the model to the Pope. And in that model, there'd be this mosaic. And he can't, <laughs> can't trace it back. And it's just very confusing. And, uh, I, I just uh, sort of like that little uh, tidbit. Right. In terms of the, the travel, I did condense the time period quite a bit. So the journey that I described probably would have taken longer than I depict in the book. And some of that also, there was more to it in an earlier draft that I cut to make it a little shorter. But people did travel long distances at times. The character of Isaac in the book was also a real person. He was Charlemagne's personal merchant. And he went all the way to Baghdad from Charlemagne's court and back again to do trading. And we know from grave goods that things found their way from the Mideast, from even farther afield, back to Britain. So there was trade going on and there were these incredible journeys. So what I depict is probably not completely realistic that this one character went as far as he did, but people did go those distances and make pilgrimages to Rome and traders went to Baghdad and these people did get around. I have to say um, that's one aspect of the novel that I uh, I was uh, discussing this with my father who's, who's quite a well-educated man and he was he didn't quite realize the number of Gaelic slaves that ended up in Baghdad uh, and uh, Spain in particular but I have to say the from my own research and my uh, own knowledge of the period uh, the 
the journey is not as unrealistic or, or um, stretched as you might think, uh, particularly those of the church um, had somewhat of a special status. So um, particularly when they were traveling through uh, areas, uh, the Christian areas, the, the fear of God was very real. And a lot of the time they were more protected by the fact that people were like, it's going to be very hard to get into heaven if I rob a priest. <laughs> but yes, um, I, I actually felt that, that journey, uh, and I'm going to discuss uh, a bit more about the the historicity of, of of the journey itself. But you'd be surprised, actually, to the extent uh, to which people travelled, because I think that, as as is in so many periods, the majority of the working poor would not have gone very far unless they were taken as slaves. But um, the special access given by uh, the, the church and and uh, the high avenues of diplomacy uh, certainly would have allowed these people to travel a lot further than you might uh, initially think. Um, but the they also um, travel through a couple of places. Uh, this kingdom of Dalriata, I believe, and I think it was it was one of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Was it Kent? Uh, very yeah, briefly. and that, that was actually the part of the book I cut, that there yeah. used to be more about that in the earlier draft, and I oh. just kind of skipped through that very quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, well, I, I'd be very interested to hear about that. But um, the but anyway, the, the thing that I found interesting was that they both times they're, they're involved in a bit of a power struggle, and that is absolutely not their intention at all. They have they have clear intentions that are about coming completely else, but they're drawn into this kind of power struggle. And I, for my own self, I was just curious where the inspiration from that part of the, the story came from. There was to some degree, a bit of history that inspired mm -hmm. me. And then I invented the circumstances, but there was a king of the Dalriata mm -hmm. named Don Cher. And I, I can't pronounce these yeah, uh, names right. very well. But... You're doing very well so far. <laughs> Thank I you. Say. And he died actually more like 782. And there was a dispute of who should inherit. There was a gap in the historical record after him for a little bit of who became the next king. At the same time, there was someone around there in this period who was known as Orcade, the Venomous. And he was a real person at this time as well. And I sort of put these different pieces together to create this conflict about who was going to inherit the kingdom. And it wouldn't have been unrealistic for the monks to be asked to decide. They did act, as you just said, as diplomats, as peacekeepers. So they end up getting involved in this dispute. And I think there's a good chance that might have been what would have happened to them if they'd come upon this dispute at this time. Yeah. So Amy and I took a break just there in our interview, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to give some context to some of the places that Amy mentions, partially in this part, but mostly in the second half of the interview. Some of these places she visited herself, other places she simply heavily researched. And first we're going to give some context to the Kingdom of Dalriata. The Kingdom of Dalriata was a Gaelic kingdom on the west coast of Scotland, with its capital of Donad in Argyll, but mainly focused around the islands of the Hebrides 
and the Irish Sea. The kingdom spanned the ocean and also came into modern-day Ulster, which is probably where these Q-Celtic-speaking peoples came from. There is a divide which we are going to talk about in a couple of episodes' time between the Celtic languages, which are mainly the Goidelic and Brythonic branches, and we're going to talk about where these diverge and how these are separate. But at the time, before the Kingdom of Dalriata, most of the modern-day nation of Scotland would have spoken a P-Celtic language, that being a Brythonic language like Welsh or Cornish or Cumbrian. The Isle of Man, Ireland, and the west of Scotland at this time spoke the Q-Celtic language of Goidelic. Prior to the arrival of Celtic-speaking people, there were a great many impressive Neolithic sites in the Orkney, Shetland and Hebridean Islands. And one of these sites is discussed by Amy. Near the ancient capital of Danad is the famous and very ancient site of Kilmartin Glen. Kilmartin Glen is a rich prehistoric landscape providing a tantalising insight into its prehistoric population. The surviving rock art is remarkable for the number of elaborately carved outcrops, the style and extent of the carvings, and their close association with other prehistoric monuments. No other place in Scotland has such a concentration of prehistoric carved stone surfaces and Neolithic as well as Bronze Age monuments. The area spans 5,000 years with a multitude of cairns, standing stones, carved rocks, stone circles, forts and later castles. Kilmartin Glen is considered to have one of the most important concentrations of Neolithic and Bronze Age remains in Scotland. There are more than 350 ancient monuments within a six mile radius, with 150 of them being prehistoric. Monuments include standing stones, a henge monument, numerous cysts, and a linear cemetery comprised of five burial cairns. Several of these, as well as many natural rocks, are decorated with cup and ring markings. These are near the remains of the fortress of Danad, as previously mentioned, which was the royal centre of Dalriata, and are located to the south of the glen on the edge of the Moimhor, or Great Moss. Danad was known as the home of kings. The mound was used as a fort for more than 2,000 years, and the site is internationally renowned as a royal power centre of the Gaelic kings of Dalriata from about 500 AD to 800 AD when our story begins. Danad is one of the few places referenced in early histories, and it's first mentioned in 683 AD, by which point it was already a major power centre potentially already the chief stronghold of the Dalriata. It may also be the spot where St. Columba reportedly met a merchant from Gaul in the late 500s AD. For those of you who've been paying close attention to both the podcast and the map, you'll notice that Danad is in a prime place to have access to that Atlantic trade route, which is so central to the story of the Celtic-speaking peoples. I mentioned St. Columba because the Dalriatans also gave the land, reportedly, to St. Columba in order to find 
found the monastery of Iona. Iona Abbey is located on the island of Iona, just off the Isle of Mull on the west coast of Scotland. It is one of the oldest Christian religious centres in Western Europe. The abbey was a focal point for the spread of Christianity throughout Scotland and it marks the foundation of a monastic community by St Columba himself, when Iona was part of the kingdom of Dalriata. St Aidan served as a monk at Iona before helping to establish Christianity in Northumberland on the island of Lindisfarne. Iona Abbey is the spiritual home of the Iona community, an ecumenical Christian religious order whose headquarters are in Glasgow. The Abbey remains a popular site of Christian pilgrimage even to this day. But by the year 800, the real powerhouse of Christianity was the Empire of Charles the Great, otherwise known as Charlemagne. Charlemagne held his cap far away in northwestern Germany at Aachen. We'll have cause to discuss the court at Aachen within this interview, but the only things that you need to know are, one, Charlemagne ruled over the vast majority of Western Europe up until this time, including modern-day France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and much of modern Germany. During the time that this story takes place, Charlemagne had conquered most of the pagan Saxons and converted much of Western Europe to Christianity, earning him unprecedented fame up until this time, as well as many acolytes. But Charlemagne was a keen promoter of the written language, which he believed was the best way to spread the word of God. He had a monastic school which was headed by Alcuin of York, a famous Saxon scholar who we will also have cause to talk about later on in the episode. Anyone who knows anything about this place and time period knows that I have neglected to mention the Norsemen. That was intentional. I would invite you to read the book and find out what role they play in this most grounded of stories. I'm sure that you will all have many questions after reading this book, and so I invite you to contact me or contact Amy herself, details of which I will provide at the end of the episode. But for now, with a little musical interlude, we'll go back to the interview. So uh, after arriving on the continent, some of our characters find themselves at the famous court uh, at Aachen um, with the Emperor Charlemagne. But was there anyone at that court that was of particular interest to you that you uh, wanted to talk about? I was very interested in Alcuin, who was the tutor at the court. He tutored Charlemagne himself, was like head of the palace school. Mm -hmm. And he was a fascinating person. And I'm going to say something pretty controversial. I think if he were alive today, he might have identified as gay. And I know these words, these concepts have changed over the centuries. So I don't want to be anachronistic. But there's something 
flamboyant about him when you read mm -hmm. things that he wrote. He was the one who came up with little pet names for everyone at the court, that Charlemagne was David and his best friend Arno was the Eagle and many other people. He made up these pet names for them. And in one of his letters to Arno, who he had a passionate friendship with, he wrote, I wish I could fly to your side and kiss you all over your eyes, your fingertips, your toes. And it's a bit shocking to see that in this medieval letter. And I know in that era, men could have that kind of passionate friendship. So I don't mean necessarily to sexualize it, but he does just come across as this flamboyant character. And it was just fascinating to Yeah, there, there, may, there may be something to it. I think there, there's a lot of evidence. There's been quite a lot written about um, that uh, in a time you know, after after the collapse of Rome in the medieval period, it wasn't really acceptable to be homosexual because of Christianity. But there's obviously various talks about celibacy. But Chris, going into the church was the natural place to go because you couldn't have a you couldn't have the sex life you wanted, so you might not as well not have one at all. Mm -hmm. um, and the it's it's an area of community and 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 brotherhood and artistic expression and unfortunately they would obviously have to repress part of their identity but it's probably one of the better places for them um so i think there, there's something to that um and, and there certainly has been a lot written about it particularly in modern times we're trying to uh, rectify the fact that um that there's this perception of uh, oh you know all these uh, homosexual people just appeared and it's like no they they had to hide because <laughs> yeah. they would be horrifically persecuted um so yeah no it's 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 very uh, it's very important I, I think that is interesting is that you if you look at the classical period uh non basically being non-heterosexual um or and kind of typical was wasn't really a, a a big deal or a taboo within their own social parameters um and once you christianity takes over you know that that changes so it seems like a natural place for him really um, but that's fascinating. I think I'm going to have to read more into him now, just simply to to get a look at these interesting and flamboyant letters. It sounds sounds really interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, and another thing about Al Queen that I love finding out about was that he had a great love of language and words. Mm. And we think of this time as so illiterate, such widespread illiteracy. But the people who were learned loved words and language. And Alcuin even said that he thought heresy came from bad Latin or <laughs> mistranslated Latin. That that was the source of heresy and that language and words were so important to him. And he loved literature and he struggled when he was young because he loved Virgil. And he struggled with that because this was pagan and you should love the Bible more than these Roman writers. <laughs> but that he loved uh, literature and and wordplay and all of that mm. uh, that's maybe uh, another another place for um i think a modern university professor forced to uh, live in the medieval period would probably be best set in the church because all they did at these um you know the the uh, the ecumenical councils or the or the communal councils was basically argue over grammar <laughs> so yes. you know there, there could be something to that I mean some of most of the major uh 
uh, church schisms of the early church were like Arianism and, and such were, were basically arguments over single words and grammar. So, you know, that, I think, again, there's definitely something to that. Um, and that happens in modern courts. There was a big lawsuit a few years ago mm -hmm. about a contract with some truckers, and it all hinged on the lack of an Oxford comma in a sentence. Wow. And it it totally affected the outcome of the court case because that comma wasn't there and the way they could interpret the contract and the sentence that was in this contract. And it cost, mm -hmm. I think it cost one of the parties like a million dollars or something. Wow. The way this contract was written. Wow. Yeah, there's, I, I have to say, I feel that there is uh a really interesting novel in there somewhere about the early, uh, particularly the early Christian schisms, because some of the personalities that, that uh, particularly the the councils uh, Chalcedon and Nicaea, uh, the, the the personalities that shine through the historical sources and some of the trickery that they try, it's almost like practical jokes to try and. Uh, do you know what it actually reminds me of? It reminds me of modern lawyers trying to use nasty tactics to get people off on technicalities that's what it reminds me of yeah. <laughs> anyway anyway with that uh, with that digression fa fascinating digression um so on that uh, i try and keep the podcast focused on similarities and stark differences between us and our ancestors which we've talked a bit about already um is there any aspect of the early medieval world you found jarring or hard to understand or get your head around or was there anything even that sh struck you is is remarkably similar like oh that's that's like a modern problem or a modern issue i think we pretty much already covered mm -hmm. some of the things i found that struck me in these ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that love of language and mm -hmm. um having a flamboyant personality shine mm -hmm. through over mm -hmm. a thousand years mm -hmm. So, and I think the fact that they did travel as far as they did was something that surprised me that mm -hmm. that Isaac, uh, the merchant, did go at least as far as Baghdad and mm -hmm. came yeah. back with a surprising gift for Charlemagne. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Which, which is, uh, I, I will all not give it away, but that surprising gift gift is heavily attested to in the historical records. So that's, uh, yeah. I, th I thought that was a really nice inclusion because. Um, I was aware of that prior and I got to that point and I was like oh that's really clever <laughs> you've got that in there um, so that that was brilliant and but it, it's more about with it did you find that there were because so far what, what I'm getting is that you identify very strongly uh, with people in the past and see them as very similar but what I haven't kind of noticed is that there doesn't seem to be anything that's come up for you that you've thought that it's hard to understand the way that they think were there was there anything that you thought I don't really understand why they would do that or why they would think that because it seems that you have a really good understanding of uh, how they thought that's a really hard question for me I think I was so wrapped up in the things that resonated with me that I didn't put a lot of thought into the differences and how different they would they would be mm. um i think you know there was a great mixture of paganism and catholicism and mm. legends and lore all woven woven together in a braid mm. 
so that they would have had these like the saints stories and the miracles that were just woven into their lives in a way that we don't really have much of today and I wouldn't say that that was jarring but there was certainly a difference but it was something that I thought was magical about them mm. so I would say that the differences between us today and the people a thousand years ago I found those differences sort of magical mm. as opposed to disturbing or jarring mm. Mm -hmm. I think that speaks to how the artist or the writer um one of their primary in my opinion the primary uh i don't know the keys to their success is their ability to empathize and and it's very hard it almost seems like you have difficulty empathizing with them yeah and it's funny because i think maybe i was trying to counter a certain bias that i know a lot of modern people have towards the middle ages towards religious people um, I was in a writing workshop once a long time ago when I was first working on the book, and I presented the scene where they're in Frisia, and the, uh, I can't think of the word, the missionary is trying to teach about Christianity to these pagans, and I meant that to be a really humorous scene, like the pagans have their ideas about their God, and this missionary is trying to explain our invisible, nameless God to these pagans. And I, I wanted this to be a touch of humor, but I presented the scene and the scene goes on for quite a bit of them discussing their religious beliefs. And in this writing group, and that was all this writing group knew of the book at that point. I, it was, oh, I didn't present the book from the beginning. I was presenting the scene out of the blue. And this one man said, if the whole book is like this, I couldn't read it. Oh, really? Because he was taking it that I was presenting this very religious view and that was a very religious book. And I think there's such a bias against this period or people mm. with religious feelings. And that's why I was being so empathetic and trying to portray people more similar to us, because I was trying to counter that kind of bias. I think I think that will go a long way, because I think that many of that there's something to the modern secular person i think that's off-putting about late antiquity in the early middle ages in europe because there's so much about the development of the church and you can't understand really uh the periods at all without understanding the church uh and i think that puts a lot of people off mm. um I'm hoping that people who are interested in my podcast for the ancient pagan period take a look at this novel and use it as a way so they're following the line of their Celtic ancestors and how those Celtic ancestors transitioned from a, a pagan identity to one that was deeply, deeply, deeply Christian and produced some of the most beautiful Christian artistry um, ever produced um i don't know if you're aware but i've recently joined a um a, there's a actually a, a following in in britain uh of people who are trying to create a, a church of celtic christianity um and trying to go back to the practices of celtic christianity um and i, I only discovered this literally about two days ago and it, it was absolutely fascinating to see people try and um Christians, modern Christians, try and bring back that 
very unique and very beautiful site of the religion. So um, it was fascinating. Um, yeah. Um, so there was a couple of things about um, the, we talked a lot about the history and the people, um, but the publishing itself, your, uh, your, your publisher mentioned that she, she found there was, there, there was some there, an interesting aspect uh, about this to do with publishing. Do you care about talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, the editor of the book, Chelsea Shannon, who was mm -hmm. a fantastic editor, told me that one of the reasons she was so drawn to the book was that, in a sense, it was a book about a publisher or about oh. publishing, mm -hmm. that they were creating this book, trying to put this book into the world. And to her, it was about a publisher as much as, as it was about an artist or a monk. And she really loved that and appreciated that aspect of the story. So she said that to me uh, just recently, actually. And I thought, I thought that was very interesting. Now that is very interesting. It's, a, it's something I wouldn't have, I've no experience with any of that. So it's something I wouldn't have thought of. And it, it's, that's a really interesting aspect. Um, but you also mentioned you'd recently been looking at a, uh, Adaman's biography of Columba. Um, is, is there anything interesting yeah, you found about that or you want to talk about? There are a couple of stories from his life that are interesting. So St. Columba founded the monastery on Iona, died in 597. And one thing that happened when he was younger was that he copied a manuscript. The, the manuscript belonged to Finian of Moville. It was a Psalter. And when Finian found out that he did this because he didn't have permission, he more or less sued Columba or said, you have to give me back both <laughs> the original and the copy. And Columba said, well, no, I mean, I created this copy. It's my copy. So they took it to the high king of the Dalriata named Darmud, I believe. Darmud. And the, mm -hmm. the king ruled to every cow its calf. And that was his decision against Columba, that Columba had to return both the Psalter <laughs> and the copy to Finian. And it's sometimes mentioned as the first known case of a copyright violation. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's crazy. The other funny thing about Columba's life is that this is the first mention of the Loch Ness Monster in Adam Men's oh. uh, biography that Columba encountered the Loch Ness Monster in tamed it or something and that that this is the first historical mention of, of i had no idea about that that is very interesting <laughs> that's maybe a, a set a selling point uh i know i know that uh, on your side of the pond there's a lot of interest in good old nessie so there you go uh well that's 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 really fascinating i think that something that strikes me over the course of this interview and, and reading the book is um it seems that it modern writers and artists are the inheritors of of this legacy and you can see that a lot of the issues that they had to deal with in their context were similar to issues that you yourself have to deal with i mean there's a struggle to get the book started and it, it's interesting that you yourself were you never gave up on your passion for this book like Kanachtak, and at, at the same time it, it, it he you you he himself is going through a almost a parallel journey to that and he's got to try and convince of the need for that um and i suppose one more aspect i wanted to talk about um that i just found really captivating um 
was the the issue of pride trying to balance that um and I, I just wondered if you if you had any thoughts or interesting insights on that because it felt like it was a very strong theme in the book intentionally or not and it really struck a chord with me i have to say yeah i felt um as a writer i'm also a playwright you think about what is the internal conflict, what, what is keeping him from his goal. And there are external obstacles, but there's also the internal obstacle. And when you think of artists and you think of the ego and the ego getting in your way, and they would have called it pride, and pride was in some ways the worst sin you could have in the early church. So that that was what I decided to develop was that he has this ego problem. He has this pride that he he wants to do this book out of pride and not for more noble reasons or out of love. And that, that's something I certainly personally have struggled with. And there was a parallel journey, that ego and that sense of, I want to do this just because uh, I'm going to write this great book or something like that. And that ego that gets in your way and I realize his journey, his personal journey, is to go from that ego to realizing that you do this for other people and you do this for love. And his discovery, finally, in the end, that he has to love in order to create this book, that, that, that you can't ultimately do it without that, without that love that you want to give, that that has to be your motivation to do it, and that you'll always find obstacles if you don't find your way to that understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just, it, it's, that's brilliant. Um, I just, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I remember I was speaking to my, my father about this and um, it felt like the, it, it, you had it in it originally, I think it was uh, a novel in four parts was the original a caption on the title i think it was something like that it's cows a novel of the eighth century but yeah. it is in four parts yeah yeah the the current caption but uh, am i not right in thinking that you had a previous uh caption on it earlier no i don't know i had I mean. at one point i had thought of calling it cows the pen of god oh okay. but we we went with a uh, novel of the eighth century ah okay uh, but to be honest the it i felt that they were all so compelling that I could have read, read a novel about each of the characters. Um, if I'd had four novels <laughs> instead of four parts, uh, I could have I, I could have read and read about these characters. And oh, I have to you. say, Kanachtok, um, I just thought he was a beautiful character and I just felt I strongly identified with him uh, and it, it seems you did as well. So that's, that's really good. Um, but yeah, well, uh, is there anything you want to promote or talk about or upcoming projects or anything like that before we finish up? Well, I could mention my website is amycrider.com, A-M-Y-C-R-I-D-E-R.com. I do have, um, my first novel is still out there. I do have the podcast you mentioned, which is audio versions of some of my plays. And I also want to mention that if anyone wants to send me an email to ask any questions about the research, what my sources were, I did much more research than I actually used in the book, a considerable amount, a ridiculous amount. 
And when I sat down to write the book, I was a bit overwhelmed by having all this research. So I ended up ignoring a lot of it and just writing the story. Mm -hmm. So I still have all this research. I have notebooks full of notes. Um, my email address is crider at amycrider.com. It's on my website. Feel free to write to me if you want to know anything about the sources I used, if you have questions, if you want to point out mistakes, I'm sure there are some. I'd be happy to hear from anyone who wanted to drop me a line. I have to say my fans are far too kind. I've not had a, uh, I know that I've made mistakes and I've not had one email yet, even, and I keep putting <laughs> out there and I'm actually quite nervous because it's been so long and I'm like, oh, the first one's going to be a horrific one because my <laughs> ego's too big. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, uh, that, absolutely brilliant. I mean, the, the one other thing I want to mention, which uh, I should have mentioned earlier, is that the something that's shining through, which is a really complicated area of study, and I think it was the reason that I noticed your level of research so quickly, was your understanding of how society worked in Ireland at that time, and the, the kingdoms, the petty kingdoms, and all the way down. And even though it was background in a sense, it shone through and it that that immersed me in it right away and oh. and with with my uh listeners who are also very have a desire to be immersed in this period uh, i think that that will strike a chord with them so well, thank uh, you i'm glad i'm glad that you liked it oh i i, I loved it I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And I have read a lot and I've read a lot of historical novels and uh, I have, uh, and I myself, I've, for my own purposes, had to do a lot of research. And I really appreciate the effort that went into this book. But to me, at the core, um, no media is anything, uh, well, fictional media without its characters. And for me, that was the strongest part. It was just, it was wonderful. And I, I, awesome. Thank you so much for coming and thank you for writing the book because let you. me tell you this, this podcast, the, the people who listen to this podcast are looking for exactly this type of, of book and project. So they are going to eat it up. I can tell you that now. <laughs> so that was brilliant. Well, I'm just going to uh, stop the recording now. Uh, there we go. So that was Amy Crider. Um, I have to say it turned into a bit more of a discussion uh, a slash review than a straight interview, but that's uh, due to my uh, greenness interview uh, and my love of the sound of my own voice, clearly. Um, but uh, thank you very much uh, for joining. Uh, I'm Kells is due to be out, I believe, the 1st of November in the UK. Uh, I asked the publisher if they wanted it to be ordered from anywhere in particular um, and they said no apart from that they would prefer that you ordered it from your own local independent bookshop to try and support independent bookshops so uh, if you can do that that would be wonderful if you struggle to find it anywhere else it is on amazon if you must um, i'm more interested in uh, the fact that you read it so wherever you get it from read it because I can't imagine anyone listening to this podcast that is motivated to listen to the sound of my voice for the amount of time uh, that they do in order to get this information is not going to be interested in this book. It is so genuine. It is so authentic. There's a real passion for this book. And my overall review uh, is that it is a wonderful historical novel it is so true to the characters and the time period that it was set, and it feels like a real tribute 
to those who sacrificed their entire lives um, in order to build this community and construct uh, this most stunning of Gospels, the Book of Kells. Okay, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time on the Celtic History Podcast. Some post-music housekeeping. Uh, if you want to support the podcast or get more content, uh, the first place to go is to my Instagram, where I am most consistently posting updates and information, particularly those that supplement the main podcast. Uh, if you liked any of the history that you heard today and you want more from this time period, I'm posting additional content on my YouTube channel, and you can also join me at patreon.com slash Celtic History Pod. That's patreon.com at Celtic History Pod, where you can have a say in additional content and request additional content on a time period out with the main narrative of the show. Okay, I'll see you next time, either with an interview with Dr. Gordon Noble or the next episode in the chronology, which is currently finished. Okay, thank you very much. Bye now.